Hello and welcome to Fidelity ETF Exchange powered by Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of the Fidelity ETF Exchange, host Etienne Yonkers-Bouchard welcomes Fidelity District Vice President Stefan Pret to the show. Stefan, a veteran at Fidelity, has been with the firm close to 20 years and has partnered with investment advisors across the country. Stefan highlights ETF trends in the wealth management industry, how advisors can incorporate ETFs in their portfolios, and a brief look into the ETF industry in 2024. This podcast was recorded on December 7, 2023. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. I'm your host, Etienne Jean-Cabouchard, a.k.a. EJB. And uh, we're back with another episode today, which I think is going to be very interesting for for our audience and listeners. And this is kind of a, a second adaptation, if you will, of the same concept, which is frontline perspectives with uh, you know district vice presidents here at Fidelity, getting their, their thoughts on what they're seeing in the marketplace, especially from the advisor community, which remains obviously here at Fidelity, kind of the, the large part of our business, but also on the ETF side, just the very big adoption rate of, of, of the vehicle among the advisor community. So we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But as usual, just a quick recap of what we did in our last episode, which was our quarterly industry recap, where we talked about trends, uh, got a chance to discuss kind of what we've seen so far this year and what we're expecting as we move forward into 2024 with obviously now we're at the recording date, we're, we're December 7th. And the past month has been really, really uh, solid performance all around from various asset classes. And we've seen that also materialize in terms of ETF flows with another 5 billion coming in for the, for the month, bringing the year to date total at around 35. So far this year, it's really been led by, by fixed income with uh, a little asterisk there, which we'll get into. Actually, I don't want to steal any thunder from from our guests, so I think I think we might touch on some of those components there. But all around, just a really solid year and continuing on momentum that's been built out from uh, looking 2020 on. It's really been four record years in a row, if you will. Uh, so you know, we'll we'll dive into some of those trends. But all in all, just if you want to recap that last episode or you want to listen to it, it is available on Fidelity.ca. It is available on your favorite podcast app under the Fidelity ETF Exchange. So enough with that. Our guest today joining us is Stéphane Pitre. Stéphane has been at Fidelity for for close to 20 years now, uh, 16 years in his district vice president role. He's had the chance to work with advisors across the country and working on, you know, building portfolios, uh, optimizing uh, portfolios, figuring out which vehicles make sense for, for certain clients, for others. So just really a wealth of knowledge. And he's also a CFA charter holder. So obviously very well versed in markets, very well versed in investments. So, Stefan, without further ado, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Etienne, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I know you've been uh, you've been doing this for roughly about three years, and I heard you're you're getting some pretty good success and traction uh, through viewership. So, thank you for having me as a guest on uh, on your podcast. No, absolutely, it's a, it's a pleasure. And like I said, so last year we actually did something a bit similar with one of our colleagues, Gisle Maillet. Um, so let's see, you know, where we go here. Maybe it's going to be a bit different. Maybe it's, we're going to we're going to rhyme a little bit. But, um, you know, I've, I've got a set of questions that I've kind of prepared. But, you know, we're going to make this a conversation. We want this to be, you know, yes, well, this still remains a bit formal. But, you know, some, you know, don't, don't be afraid to, to mix it up a little bit. And uh, I guess let's get right into it. Uh, the first thing that I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's been a really good year for the Canadian ETF industry. Like I mentioned, 35 billion in net new assets. What are some of the main trends you've seen this year from the advisor community? Because, 
you know, sometimes things will, uh, you know, some direct investors, for example, will be attracted to certain things, advisors to others. And uh, what are things that stuck out this year to you? Okay, so I have the privilege. So basically my territory, the region I cover, I cover some of the greater Montreal area. I, I cover about $3.7 billion of, of assets within the Fidelity network. Uh, but I work with roughly about 200 teams. So 200 advisory teams, they could be financial planning or they could be brokerage, whether they're discretionary license. So I do get to see different ways of running a practice. But hands down, the biggest trend, specifically when it comes to ETFs, has been the move towards interest, uh, high interest savings account, right? So the he says, and it's it's not a surprise. I you look at what happened in the last eighteen months, interest rates have risen from essentially zero to five percent, and that's been quite punishing on, on an asset category, which is fixed income. So we do have, as human nature, we have a, a, a recency bias to sort of move away from pain points, and so one of the biggest trends we've seen is people uh, trying to find a way to protect capital. And, in a different manner. And now that high interest savings accounts at certain parts throughout the year were offering above 5%, it became an attractive uh, vehicle for people to park money. But in, this is just a personal opinion. I think that trend is a, is a 2023 trend. I think it's a short-lived trend. I think one of the most important things that people have to be aware of is the, the, the risk of reinvestment. The risk on high interest savings accounts is not the 5% people are getting. It's the risk of what rate they're going to get, to get once that rate is no longer attractive. So whether people are using GICs or are using high interest savings accounts as a way to protect capital instead of bonds, which didn't do the job last year, I think the moment at which those rates come down is the moment in which perhaps bonds have already started their next cycle. And so I believe as much as money has moved into that asset category in 2023, there's going to be a natural means reversion in the years to come. But that has been by far the biggest trend in 2023. The other trend, we're starting to see it a bit more. Uh, regulation in the, in the advisory space has become higher and higher. Uh, portfolio construction becomes more and more time consuming. So the number one thing we're seeing is a lot of, of simplicity being added to portfolios, at least for the foundational side of portfolio construction. And so we're seeing a lot of these ETF portfolios come and play more of an integral part perhaps not for the totality of the account, but at least for the starting point. And then we build around with satellite positions, depending on the style of the advisor that we're working with. But often we're seeing those ETF portfolios playing a fundamental role. That's really interesting. I think the the the, the HISA one that you mentioned is it's just like more than half the flows going into fixed income this year went into that category. It's something that we had started to see last year, which I think last year, no argument could really be, be made that it was maybe, you know, it, it was the the wrong choice because of where rates were going and kind of the anticipation from markets that it was going to be a challenging environment for bonds. But uh, the reinvestment risk comment that you made, I think is the most important. It's basically the opportunity cost of not owning fixed income going forward is, um, you know, you've seen months like just the past month and November, you know, various bond indices, and we're not talking about actively managed, you know, bond mandates that might have done a bit more, just the bond benchmarks are up between, you know, three and a half to six percent over the past month and a half that's the entirety of your yearly return on say a gic or one of these uh hissas and as we move forward it's not so much that we expect or we want necessarily cuts to happen but if you're yielding five and a half six six and a half in some cases seven percent on an investment grade focused mandate with a duration of six six and a half well that that's ensuring a longevity of returns that i think can't be uh, over or understated, if you will, because 
uh, a lot of that is capital gains and that tends to, 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 to get recuperated a bit faster. And I think that might be a risk as we go in the next year is that a lot of people as rates have come down, well, some of those cap gains aren't going to be on the table anymore. Well, I, I have the privilege of being invited sometimes to meet with the end user, with the actual investor that's investing with my financial advisors. And the conversation is often, well, I don't know what the future is, but right now I'm being given a very attractive rate. And so the conversation is always, well, I'll use that rate until it's no longer attractive. But as you know, I'd say the markets are always forward looking. And this is, this is the, the part of, of the formula that I think people forget is the bond cycle, the bond rallies typically don't begin when rates start to come down. They actually historically have proven to begin once rates stop going up. So the problem is we'll never receive that, that sort of data point or that email or that communication saying now is the time. We'll know in hindsight. But my fear is that we're going to see history repeat itself and we often will see money flows follow the performance rather than take advantage of the opportunity that's in front of us. That's, that's such an interesting point because one of the biggest surprises to us anyways, and I'm and sorry to the audience, maybe I've repeated myself like four times this year already, but like one of the big surprises that U.S. equity ETFs are in outflows and U.S. equity are like uh, markets are doing very well, um, which is usually kind of the opposite, right? Like when things are going well, we see flows and when things aren't going well, you see outflows. Um, is that something that's come up a little bit uh, this year, like, you know, kind of repositioning the, the U.S. equity component or at least maybe, you know, let's be honest, it's been driven heavily or I mean, almost entirely by seven stocks this year, the performance of the S&P 500. Maybe that's one of the reasons we're seeing outflows. Maybe it's because, you know, valuations are relatively basis a bit more expensive than other markets. Is that a discussion that's come up a little bit recently with with some teams on your end? Yeah, it's it's. People are looking at the U.S. It's it's because it's hard to chase and and really find confidence in that U.S. stock market, given that it's a handful of names and magnificent seven that are really driving up this performance, right? And so buying into the U.S. stock market when it's so concentrated in terms of performance at the top of those top seven names, a lot of advisors don't necessarily feel confident deploying capital into there. So where we're seeing we're seeing more money going to what I would argue more sophisticated versions of that are more appropriate. So the passive index will clone what the market is. So if you're buying the passive index, you're buying a highly concentrated portfolio in the US at least in the tech sector. Whereas where I'm starting to hear conversations is people are, are advisors are looking towards maybe getting a little bit more US exposure, but through a more broadly diversified index. So an example would be an equally weighted S&P 500 or a multi-factor approach towards the S&P 500 rather than just buying the pure passive benchmark. Don't forget, passive benchmarks are not built with any logical rationale. In the case of the S&P 500, it's based on a market capitalization, right? There's no logic on why the S&P 500 should have a third of its weighting in tech. It's just the way the capitalization of the stock market is built. It's just it's just what's worked, right? So it's kind of like uh, you you are you are constructing your future investment thesis on past performance, and that's you know for for for, for some definitely gets you to point A to point B. But I agree with you. It's you know when you're looking at it from a portfolio diversification standpoint, you're thinking you know what if there is a, a leadership change. What if, you know, you're trying to run these scenarios in your head and say, okay, where can I take positions that can maybe offset some of that? And, um, you know, other things that have been mentioned is, you know, small caps, uh, you know, stuff that basically does well in an early cycle. So if we, what if we're kind of wrong and, you know, we kind of get through this slowdown in the economy handily? Well, maybe those areas that are extremely cheap start to work. And I I think that's going to be interesting to see also next year is if, if we get to see more breadth in the index, that's good for a lot of various other parts of the market, um, small caps notably. Because if you look at the Russell 2000, just like pure, you're looking at two, you know, two indices, 
Russell 2000, Russell 1000 even, or S&P 500 is even more, you know, uh, concentrated to the to three sectors in particular. Uh, it's not been easy. It's not been easy buying the Russell 2000. And, you know, obviously we're an active shop for the most part. And, you know, some of our managers have managed to, 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 to I guess, on a relative basis, at least add some, add some significant value. But that's been a tough space to look at right now. Correct. But I'll say, I'll say this, one of the truest things in the investment business and having the privilege to work with some advisors, I've been at this 25, 30 years, one of the truest lines in investments is means reversion. Everything typically comes back to an average. You, it's kind of hard to believe that 493 names out of the 500 in the S&P 500 have not really participated the same way to the rally. If we are truly going to go into a next economic cycle, we're going to have to have a breadth of participation by the market. So buying into those other other opportunities might be attractive at some point in the future. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're not in the business of making calls here. You know, <laughs> that's not what we're doing. But, uh, you know, you're right. It's it's not it's not um, historically the average where you have such a small number of names just pulling the index completely. So, OK, I mean, look, we, we've talked quite a bit about this year. Um, I want to take maybe a bit longer perspective because like, you you know, we mentioned you've been here for, for quite a while and you've seen this business evolve through time where it used to be extremely heavily dominated by mutual funds and, and individual stock picking. And now ETFs are a bigger part of, of that whole model. How have you seen that change, say, over the past decade? Like how, how have ETFs become a part of the game? Whereas before, you know, it felt like the ETF was historically a DIY investor type vehicle or it was more, you know, it was smaller. It was a smaller industry, especially in Canada. I mean, in the US, maybe, you know, yes, we're, we're behind what they're doing. But all in all, you've seen a big uh, change. And, you know, I want to touch on some of the changes that you've seen on your end. Okay, well, so I love the question. I get asked this a lot. So actually, go back to the history of ETFs. Really, when, when ETFs started to play more of a role in the advisory business, it was basically buy an ETF because it's cheap, right? The pure passive ETF. That was historically what ETFs were all about. It was passive. But uh, you mentioned Jaslan, who was a colleague who was on this webcast uh, last year. He, he had a great line. He's one of my mentors. And he had a great line. He says, if you want to pay peanuts, you're going to get a monkey. And so essentially, you get what you pay for, right? You buy a passive index. The, the value proposition is this. You get 100% of the risk of that index with zero probability of ever beating that index. When you think about investing, that's, a, that's not a winner's proposition. But you go back 10 years ago, ETFs were often synonymous with passive and cheap. But that's really evolved. If you think about where the ETF market is now, now you have three basic versions of ETFs, right? You have the passive buckets. Then you're going to have the smart beta or rules-based or factor-based, if you want, ETFs. And then you have the fully actively managed ETF where you have a portfolio manager making fundamentally driven decisions on which securities put into it. So you have three. In my conversations with advisors, you don't hear so much about the passive exposure that you did 10 years ago. Most advisors, when they're actually using the ETF space now in their practice, they're using it as a way to complement their skill set and how they're constructing their portfolios. So perhaps an advisor might be more versed in doing fundamental analysis from a value standpoint, understands balance sheet risk, understands uh, business model uh, value um, earnings progression of, of a business, but maybe does not understand uh, momentum trends or understand how the the, the artificial intelligence space or the renewable energy space is going to function in the next five to 10 years. So they might deploy a factor-based ETF to get an isolated exposure within that or delegate an active manager to complement their fundamental approach on the other side. So you've seen a lot more integration 
of desired outcome ETFs. What I mean by specific factor attribution or geographical attributions that are not going to be replicating a pure passive index. And so, but that's the passive story. I think in, in, in the average investor, if you go back, a lot of people think ETF means passive means cheap, but it's really evolved from that yeah. in the last 10 years. It used to be black and white pretty much, right? It was like fund active, ETF passive. So that's definitely like from an industry standpoint changed. The use of passive though, historically is the idea was, let me use the my let me get beta exposure and let me do a lot of like stock picking around it. And then that's where I can, you know, some years add value, some years, you know, it might underperform, but it was kind of like, let's use that as a core and then maybe add some stuff around it. Is that still how you see passive being used or is it now just kind of like it's, it's, you know, it's an allocation for, for a certain region, like you mentioned, or a certain sector, or it could be a certain market where maybe I don't have. So for example, international, I'll use that as an example, like MSCI iffy, um, you know, I want international exposure. I want it easy, simple, but I don't necessarily want to go out and have to find the active manager that I like or find a, a factor that I like. How has that dynamic changed? Like the way that passive is incorporated in portfolio? Because I know that, anyways, from from I haven't been around as, as long. I've I've been here for you know I'm coming up on seven years now. That's kind of what passive was, right? It's like that core, and then kind of add some stuff around it. Well, so okay, I'm I'm gonna challenge you on that comment. I think, and I love the question. If you go back, so people were using passive indexes, but they'd often use the S and P 500 or they'd use the EFI. But if you think about the advisory base, most people were not using the passive Canadian index. And the reason they weren't using the passive Canadian index is because there was a collective agreement that the Canadian index is a poorly diversified index, right? It's roughly about 50% is either in financials or energy stocks within the Canadian marketplace. And that's not a good representation of a diversified portfolio. So example, XIC as the broad-based Canadian index is not a properly diversified index. So we'd see advisors typically either pick their own securities or use a, a different type of ETF to get that exposure. But the U.S., they always said it was a market that was hard to beat. It's a broadly diversified market. And that was true 10 years ago. But look at the progression in the last five years of the tech sector within the, the S&P 500. Now, a third of the index is in one single sector. I don't need an opinion on where the U.S. stock market is going to be. I just need an opinion of where the technology sector is going to be. And I'll know where the S&P 500 is going to be going. And so the argument now, and I'm, I'm having this more and more with advisors, is is the S&P pure passive index truly a smart way to invest when it comes to portfolio construction? And so when I say the ETF business has evolved, and you talked about it international, just buying the broad-based EFI index, you do end up getting a basket of securities within there that are, quote-unquote, referred to as zombie companies that have been surviving with this fact that rates were at zero for so long. But they weren't really fundamentally viable businesses that you'd like to invest in when you looked at them fundamentally. And so passive indexing has become less and less popular. And now you're seeing exactly what you described. Advisors trying to get specific exposures or specific style exposures within those geographies to complement their portfolio construction. That's a, that's a really good point, right? I mean, indexes change over time. And that's kind of the, the reality of passive is, like we said, is, is relying on what worked in, you know, in the past and what's what's gotten bigger, what's gotten smaller. And um, you know, S and P five hundred might have been extremely hard to beat over the past ten years, but you also saw uh, a really strong growth tech market and a heavily tilted index towards there. And and you mentioned tech, but the reality is, com services and consumer discretionary. <laughs> you got a lot of tech names in there too. So you look at this year's performance; it's those three sectors, and that's it. 
even names like Berkshire that have heavily invested positions within the tech space, right? So it's, it's like the, the index, the S&P 500 is really not as diversified as it once was. So that's why it's probably going to become less and less used within portfolio construction. Mm-hmm. And how would you, so, so that's like, now we've talked quite a bit about equities and kind of the active versus passive. One of the areas where we've seen a lot of growth on the active side, because you mentioned, you know, some of the trends is that, you know, it used to be, well, even when I started, it was about 78% of assets that were invested in passive ETFs in Canada. Now it's down below 70%. So it's not like they're, it's still the majority, but it's not as big of a majority as it was. And a lot of that is due to the fixed income space, which is a much more fragmented market. It's less efficient because it's still OTC. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, and that's over the counter for those listening that maybe haven't heard that abbreviation. It's, uh, there's more friction, trading costs are higher. Uh, you're more dependent on issuance patterns because they change a lot more than, than like, you know, in the S&P 500, like, yes, there's inclusion and exclusions, but it's fairly much the same basket of stocks over time. Bonds can, it can change drastically from one cycle to another. Is that an area where you've seen, because uh, passive still being used, I think, quite a bit on like some equity parts. And that's, that's a reality. But on the fixed income side, it seems like that's changing rapidly. And Sam, I've had this conversation with you beforehand. In my conversations with advisors, I ask and I'm always shocked to know how little passive exposure they have in the fixed income space, where you really see a lot of active managers. And there's, there's quite a few out there in the industry, right? Fidelity has their own with Jeff Moore and Michael Page. But the industry has quite a few actively managed fixed income ETFs. And that's where you see when, when I deal with a lot of discretionary portfolio managers within the brokerage firms, they will typically have a certain basket of securities they select on their own on the equity side. Then they'll build it around with ETF and active managers as satellites. And then, but on the fixed income side, it's actually historically been very actively managed. And so they're going to use fixed income. And there's a logic behind that is that, and you talked about the indexing, if you take the Canadian benchmark, for example, it's highly skewed towards government issuance. Therefore, in the index, it's yeah. highly skewed towards governments, right? So you got about 70% of the index. And rates. And you have that, that means you have no control over interest rate and credit risk, basically. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's not an optimized solution. So active managers can actually find better opportunities within the fixed income space. But also put yourself in the brokerage community, inventories that they have access to in terms of selecting individual securities. Back in the 90s, they were a lot more accessible. But given how institutional players play now and how the market is, is structured, they're having less and less access to individual securities. So they have to deflect and use active managers, which are quote unquote institutional strategies to get access to those bonds. And so they use us due to lack of accessibility to inventories. They use us due to the fact that the passive indexes are just poorly constructed. And in the industry, that has been my biggest segment in my personal practice within my business, has in ETFs at least, has been towards the fixed income sleeves. Interesting. That's really interesting. Don't we have it in, and you would know the statistic, but isn't Fidelity's uh, fixed income strategies one of the most used active strategies in the marketplace when it comes to Canadian actively managed ETFs? Yeah, we're definitely we're definitely up there. I mean, there's a few other players that that you know. Um, yeah, there's definitely some big players there, but we're we're right up there. And I think the idea has always been just kind of like you said, is that we. Unlike an S and P five hundred, which yeah, you can't, you get it, you get, you understand, tech has has done really well. That's what you get, and and if you think that's going to continue, well, you know, by all means. But with bonds, is you know, if you have seventy percent, say in your um your Canadian aggregate bond index, seventy percent is governments. Is that really what you want long term? Like, I, you know, so it really just depends on kind of what you're looking for. An active manager can be tactical also in managing duration, which has been extremely important over the past couple of years. I mean, I don't think there's been a better time to see active management and bonds, albeit 
every mandate's down from a performance standpoint in 2022 on a relative basis, which I know some investors don't, you know, don't really care about relative because they're just worried about, you know, how can I get from point A to point B with I need six, seven percent return? Yeah, what get it however you want. You know, from an asset management standpoint, if we do minus three versus minus nine, that's a really good year. <laughs> so um, that's what we've seen a lot of, I think. But uh, I want to move on to another thing that you mentioned earlier in trends. And, I, you know, we didn't quite get uh, get back to it, which was the most multi-asset ETFs. And that's basically like ETF portfolios. You get, you know, anywhere from, say, you know, a basket of like 10 to 15, 20 ETFs packaged together in one simple solution. And that's, you know, historically was very popular among retail, like direct retail investors because it was a way to, you know, for, for smaller accounts, say you open up your TFSA, you got a couple thousand bucks instead of buying, you know, going down and buying 10 different ETFs and trading all of them. You just buy this and kind of use that as a core and then maybe pick some stuff around it. Um, is that something that's now and you mentioned you did mention it. So I guess I'm re-asking a question because you did mention that those were becoming more popular. But to what extent has that uh, changed? And I want comments also because historically ETFs have been reserved to the IROC side of the business for uh, for advisors. Are you now seeing also with firms like Fidelity providing fund versions of these products, the MFDA side now, you know, chugging along and using these to help uh, in some cases lower fees, in some cases just offer a different way of investing, basically like pairing that with, with you know, typically active only, long only. Type strategy. Okay, I'll come back to the question on do we see advisors yeah, on the fund well, side? I, I want to come back to <laughs> the broader the broader question though, in terms of, of where we see trends. Think of it this way: the last three four years of the stock market have been a very uh, punishing market if you're trying to make calls and you find yourself on the wrong side of a call. So 2020 was dictated by the technology sector. 2021, most investors didn't believe in the rebound of the rally, and it was a really hard market to keep up with. 2022 was a completely whipsawed version of 2020. Technology stocks got punished, value stocks did very well. And now in 2023, we're seeing an opposite cycle of 2022. So it's been a really seesawed version of market in the last three, four years. But the number one tool advisors always have at their disposal is the power of rebalancing. The problem in the investment business in general, investors and advisors, is the time to do the rebalancing. It's very hard to know when and also to find the time to rebalance every investor equally. And so that's exactly what we've seen. See, last year, if value did tremendously well and growth did significantly less well, the call was you should rebalance and go back to sort of a balanced version of the two, and you would have participated quicker to the rebound this year on the technology sector. All these ETF portfolios and these managed solutions, they do that for you automatically. So that's where you're seeing because of time constraints in our society and because of regulatory pressure to make sure we're always doing what's right for investors, you're seeing more and more advisors use those all-in-one strategies, those all-in-one portfolios of ETFs. That's answer number one. Where you come to your question on the other side, from uh, uh, on the mutual fund side, if we're even seeing not the IROC, but the financial planning side of our business, the MFDA licensed advisors, you're also seeing more and more use of that. And that comes in part with pressure on fees. We're trying to find what is the best solution with the right or the appropriate level of cost. And sometimes that means combining some active with some ETF portfolios to have that happy medium. So one of the trends that we've been encouraging within our business that we've been seeing get a lot of traction and some of our colleagues will share the same thing is combining half a fully actively managed portfolio and half an all-in-one ETF portfolio, go 50-50, you get the best of both worlds and you average out the cost to a lower overall expense for the investor. And that's 
that seems to be resonating well in the investment space. I'm of the opinion that next year that's going to really take off. There's There's been a trend that's been developing and usually the trend is your friend. And so I'm of the belief that that will take a lot of traction in 2024 as well. Perfect. So actually that's, I was looking at the time and we're already at you know 26 minutes. So we're going to go ahead and wrap this up and I'm going to ask you one last question and you started to answer it in terms of what you expect for 2024. And my, my, my last question was going to be, what are some of the things you're looking out for from an asset allocation perspective in 2024? Some changes that might be done in portfolios that are maybe it's not to predict kind of what, you know, the advisor community is going to be doing. It's that's not at all what, you know, everybody's doing different things that realistically. But what are some of the trends that you think will be popular in 2024 that um, that we'll see come through? Like if we do this again next year at this time, like what are some of the areas where flows are going to be that might have been this year or might not have been and so just kind of your perspectives for next year and what what do you what do you expect? So, OK, so not to repeat myself on ETF portfolio side, I do believe that'll be a trend. But the number one trend you I said it earlier, I'm a firm believer behind mean reversion. And so look at how much money flowed out of fixed income ETFs and went into these high interest savings account. That reinvestment risk is going to be real, a realization that investors are facing in the upcoming 12 months. And you're going to see a significant shift come back. My only fear is that it's not done too late. I think November was a perfect example of how quickly trends can change direction. My, my, my view would be that next year, you're going to see a massive amount of money come out of these high interest savings accounts and flow back into fixed income strategies. Now that you're starting to see the trend in rates, I don't know if we've hit peak rates yet by central banks, but if that is truly the case that we've hit, that's usually a good starting point to start looking at fixed income strategies going forward. So that would be the number one trend I think you're going to see in 2024. Interesting. No, I, I, I like that. I, I actually tend to agree with that quite a bit. And I've been talking about it is uh, those hissas and cash alternatives. The reality is, is I don't think anybody would make an argument that that's where you want to be in long term invested for capital appreciation. So it's somewhat of a flow through. Maybe it takes time. Maybe it's going to go fast. I don't know. But I think you're right. I think that's going to be an area of focus. And I think we're also going to see uh, a return to U.S. Because everybody's going to, you know, like right now, like I, as we're talking, it's still, uh, I think we're down 800 million. It's not like it's not like we're blowing out U.S. equities, but, you know, we're still on a relative basis, much lower than Canada International. I think maybe we see that make a slight comeback with how uh, investors notice the performance, you know, albeit the U.S. Econ or the U.S. market's a, a bit expensive on a relative basis because of the top heavy stuff. There's opportunities still there. And the, the American consumers, anyways, for now, showing a lot of resilience in this higher rate environment, given they're less sensitive um, and kind of chugging along on a relative basis, where in places like Canada, you know, where we are slowing down quite a bit. So if I could add a comment on that, that trend, I think we'll go to the US, like you say, recency bias, you see the performance money typically flows. My hunch would be that they're not going to go into the broad base passive versions because of reluctancy to focus on those top seven names. I would assume that people are going to be looking at more sophisticated ways to buy that U.S. market exposure, but in more of more of a, a sophisticated construction manner. Perfect. Well, that would be great for us. So <laughs> let's leave it on that. Stefan, thank you so much for doing this. This is very appreciated. And I want to wish you um, happy holidays. This is the last episode we'll be recording between now and the end of the year. So to all our listeners, same thing. Happy holidays. Thank you so much for supporting us. And we look very much forward to continuing this series in the new year. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the ETF Exchange powered by Fidelity Connects. Don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter 
and subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a five-star rating or review. Thanks again and see you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.